0: Well, good morning. Thank you so much for downloading the Discovery Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today is our Easter Sunday Sermon. So today, uh, Pastor Rick is talking about this whole week of celebrating Good Friday and now Resurrection Sunday. And today, he's discussing all the evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus, giving us six good reasons that we can know for sure that Jesus is alive. You're not going to want to miss this episode. As always, you can email podcast at dfchurch.com to let us know what you think of the show and visit dfchurch.com to learn how to further support the ministry of Discovery Fellowship Church. Now, here is Pastor Rick. Very good resurrection morning. Welcome to Discovery Church on this special Sunday. Uh, I see some new faces in the room this morning, and that's always great to see. Uh, My name is Rick, and I have the privilege of being the teaching pastor this morning, but uh, welcome to those of you who are uh, maybe visiting us from out of town. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online this morning well, and welcome to those of you who may not have been here with us um, before or maybe not in uh, quite a long time. Um, I don't know if you're happy to be here this Easter morning because you are happy and you are excited and you're hopeful about Easter or maybe you're here today because uh, you felt like you needed to be here, or somebody uh, wanted you here for some reason. Or maybe you're here because you're searching this morning. Maybe you've come because you were a part of our celebration outreach yesterday. So many people came to that, and so I hope that that's the case. Regardless, we are glad uh, that you are here because the Lord Jesus Christ is also here, and He is here for every one of us. And so I'm excited that you're present to hear from him and what it is that his spirit has to share with us this morning. So let's pray in anticipation of doing that. Father, uh, perhaps this morning, Lord, um, we ask ourselves, Lord Jesus, what difference really uh, do you make? What difference do you make in a person's life? Um, What difference does the resurrection make? Spirit of God, I would just ask that you would speak to us as we spend a few moments opening your word. Uh, Just continue, Lord, to fill this place with your presence as we continue in an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. And I just ask this according to the name of the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, um, I, like I suspect some of you, read the scripture narrative of the Passion Week, uh, the record of the final week of Jesus' earthly life prior to his brutal crucifixion. Um, I read that in preparation for the worship service that we had here on Good Friday and for today, Resurrection Sunday. And for me, at least, I focused my attention uh, primarily on the Gospels of Matthew chapter 27 and John chapter 20. And as I read those portions again, um, I was reminded about the Holy Spirit's inspired account of the betrayal, um, the arrest, the multiple trials, the brutalization, the excruciating uh, crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like those of you who may have read those narratives again this week, I was drawn again to be reminded of the horrifying details of the end of the Passion Week, which involved the hollow promises on the part of Jesus' friends, his disciples, uh, to stay faithful to Jesus, even the face, in the face of his death. I was reminded of Judas Iscariot, giving his heart to the prompting of, of Satan and selling Jesus out for 30 coins. I was reminded of the pleas of Jesus to his Heavenly Father Is there any other way? And yet his willingness to do whatever his father desired of him. I was reminded of the shameful and the unlawful and the embarrassing mistreatment of Jesus at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the false witnesses that were assembled and the vacillation and the self-serving decisions of Pontius Pilate reminded of the horrible beatings, the lacerating whipping, the crown of thorns that was pressed into the Lord Jesus' scalp, and then the spikes driven into his hands and feet as he was posted on the cross, the mockery, the bitter vinegar drink, when all he wanted was just a little glass of water, the hours of him hanging suspended on that cross, his forsaken cry, the spear that was driven into his side. And really by all rights, the story of Jesus should have ended there. The execution show over, Jesus is hung there on the cross, limp and ripped apart like a bloody rag. He was the innocent lamb of God, whose shed blood poured out and flowed down from that sacrificial cross. Even as sinners all around laughed and jeered and gambled and smugly celebrated. He was the struck down shepherd who had been gathering his sheep. He was the stone that the builders rejected. He was the one who knew no sin and yet who became sin for us. Now it's a pretty familiar story I think to most of us who've been around church very much. Almost so familiar that we can become somewhat inoculated to the importance of it. Um, Dorothy Sayers, the author, wrote it this way. She said, it is curious to me that people who are filled with horrified indignation, whenever a cat catches a sparrow, can hear the story of the killing of God Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. The words of the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 read like this. It says, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. After this, the Gospels record for us that they took his body off of the cross and they wrapped his body tightly in linen cloths with perhaps as much as 80 pounds of embalming spices. Pilate ordered the tomb to be secured with Roman guards. Perhaps actually as many as 50 soldiers posted four at a time at four hour intervals around the clock. And then they sealed it with a Roman seal, which if broken would result in the death penalty for the transgressor. And that was that. End of story. Or so everyone thought, at least in real time. The Gospel of Mark tells us when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? The gospel writer Matthew adds, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. The apostle John continues that narrative in chapter 20 and verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now I wonder, as you come to church on this Easter Sunday, if there's a question, perhaps, in your mind about all of this. For many folks that I have talked to over the years, here's the question which I think you and I must have an answer and that is how do we know? How do we know? What can make us rock solid certain that Jesus actually came out of that stone carved tomb? That he was dead and that he rose from the dead? And how can we know that Jesus is fully and he is victoriously alive right now. I wanna submit to you this morning that we can know this for at least six powerful reasons, and I wanna give them to you just very quickly this morning. Here's the first one. We know it because God's always precisely fulfilled word demands the resurrection of the Messiah. Centuries before this historical event occurred in the first century, The Spirit of God moved on the heart of King David of Israel to write these words in Psalm 16. Here you can see what David says. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One See corruption. Now, either those are, are nice, uh, beautiful, poetic words expressing you know, some exalted thoughts on the part of King David or else they are, in fact, prophecy that David foretold with respect to somebody else in mind, not himself. And in fact, we know that that's what it is because when he when the apostle peter stands up on the day of pentecost in the city of jerusalem in the book of acts chapter 2 he quotes those very words and explains to the thousands of people there listening and he says in so many words look folks we've got david's grave with us today it's right around the corner you know where it is i've been there i've seen it He says you could go in there today and see a thousand-year-old box full of rotted flesh and bones. He's dead, he's buried, he's decayed. David is in the grave and his body was very much into corruption. But David wasn't talking about himself in Psalm 16. He was looking forward as a prophet to the person of the Messiah. He said you will not allow your Holy One Jesus, to see corruption. The prophet Isaiah basically says the same thing. 700 years before Jesus appears physically on the scene, Isaiah 53, verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, an offering for guilt. He shall prolong his days. Now, folks, there are, in fact, more than 40 Old Testament messianic prophecies directly and clearly fulfilled by the person of Jesus. Those Old Testament and messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled demanded the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Secondly, how do we know? We know it based upon the promises of Jesus himself, which demanded the bodily resurrection of the Messiah. You see it in Mark 8, 31. He then began to teach them, that is, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now you can see this very same teaching repeated by Jesus in multiple places all throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. He told folks plainly, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to to be raised to life again on the third day. That's what he told them. That's what he promised them. So let me ask you a question this morning is do you think that jesus is a liar is he just some sort of pathological liar trying to to foist some odd deception on people just making stuff up that never came to pass is he some self-absorbed attention seeker just saying outrageous kinds of stuff maybe to get you know some headlines or is he psychotic Is he just loony? Maybe he believes this stuff he's saying, but really, it's just crazy talk. Actually, you see, he was either a liar, or else he was crazy, and either way, he's dead and gone, or else he told the truth, and he is alive and well today, just like he said. Those are your only choices. Jesus' own words demand the truth, of the bodily resurrection. Thirdly, we know it because of the historical evidence that demands the bodily resurrection of the Messiah. Stuff like the Roman guards, the empty tomb, the missing body, the concocted explanation lie and the lie of the religious leaders, and the consistency of all of the written accounts. Historian after historian, apologist after apologist, lawyer after lawyer have studied all of the evidence that is available from history and have concluded this, the bodily resurrection is the best and most plausible explanation for all that happened and for all of the body of evidence that we have. Fourthly, we know it because... The eyewitness testimony demands the bodily resurrection of the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, as you can see, writes plainly about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, that is, that he was seen, Now folks, that is a critical piece of the gospel that you and I believe. Not just that he lived and that he died, not just that he was crucified and that he was buried, but then was raised again on the third day and he was seen by people. That's a part of the good news of the gospel. Paul goes on, he he appeared to Cephas, that is, to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, at least at the time of the writing of this letter. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as though to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me also. Number five, we know that Jesus is bodily resurrected because of the remarkable change, otherwise really inexplicable in the disciples and apostles, which demands the bodily resurrection of the Messiah. Because think about it. How else do you figure this out? How do you explain that all of these guys, the disciples, were running for their lives at the arrest and at the crucifixion and at the couple of days that then followed that, They could not get away from Jesus and the cross fast enough. They didn't want to have anything to do with the arrest and the beating and the crucifixion because in fact they could be next. So they're hiding in the shadows, they are slinking around in back alleys, they are hiding behind locked doors in secret places. They they did not want to lay their lives down for Jesus even though they had promised beforehand that they would be willing to do that. So, how then do you explain the dramatic change from the arrest and the cross to when you see them just a couple of weeks later at the beginning of the book of Acts, where they're now standing up in broad daylight in the very same place where Jesus was arrested and where he was tried and beaten, and now they are standing up in front of the leaders of the nation and the people and saying, you guys murdered your Messiah. But Jesus is alive again. So go ahead and do anything you want to us. I love what uh, J. Oswald Sanders in his book says about the incomparable Christ. He says, the death of their leader initially led to a demoralized band of men. It plunged them into despair. They had lost their faith in their cause. Shortly afterward, again, they were a united band, zealous for their cause, willing to suffer any punishment and even death. What produced this dramatic change? Folks, sane people don't die for what they know to be a lie. People are willing to die for false beliefs, certainly, but no one in their right mind is willing to die for something that they know full good and well is false. Now I hope I'm not letting any sacred family cats out of the bag here, but let me ask you, uh, would you be willing to die If someone held a loaded gun to your head and said, you know, the Easter bunny is a mythical creature. It's a made-up story. You agree with me, right? Would you say, oh no, he's as real as the tooth fairy. Go ahead and pull that trigger. I don't think so. Sane people don't die for what they know to be a lie, but they will die for the truth. Lastly, number six, we know because of the repeated demonstrations of the power and presence of the risen Jesus today that demands the bodily resurrection. Now, I could tell you personally story after story of transformations. No doubt, you probably too could tell me story after story of lives that have been changed by Jesus, maybe even your own. People who have been and who are being transformed from what they once were into new creations. I'm talking about lives restored, marriages healed, addictions broken, purposelessness transformed into direction and meaning and eternal hope. Frankly, no one has changed out more guilt and despair and frustration and hopelessness into joy and hope And forgiveness and purpose than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because he's alive. And he loves to do that. Do you know him? If not, you need to know him. He can and he will change your life. He did it back then. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. He's doing it today. And so yes... God's without error word demands the bodily resurrection of the Messiah. Yes, Jesus' own promise and his own credibility demands it. Yes, the historical evidence explains the empty tomb as nothing short of resurrection. Yes, the eyewitness testimony demands it. Yes, the otherwise inexplicable change in the disciples and apostles require it. And yes, the ongoing, repeated Millions upon millions of times demonstrated power and presence of the living Jesus Christ in the lives of people today demands it. I think A.W. Tozer was right on target when he said this. I cannot give in to the devil's principal deceitful tactic, which makes so many Christians satisfied with a yearly Easter celebration instead of experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection. It is the devil's business to keep Christians mourning and weeping with pity beside the cross instead of demonstrating that Jesus indeed is risen. It's a question that I think I need to ask myself today. Perhaps you should ask it of yourself as well. Is my life an everyday illustration Of the power of the living, risen Jesus Christ, because I have come to know him personally and I am possessed internally of his living Holy Spirit? Or are we simply content to be at an Easter celebration? Is it about the Lord Jesus Christ living his life through you and me? There are lots of of biblical and historical proofs of the resurrected Jesus, but The very best proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has always been the life transformation of his disciples. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, these reminders, principally from your word, about the truthfulness of what you have said and what you have done. And if it's true, Lord, it is transformative and I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in this room that has not availed themselves of that opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, not just about him or about what he's done or what happened to him, but to know him in personal relationship, to be forgiven of their sin and to be uh, filled with his spirit and to be willing to be transformed in their living. I pray that today would be that day of decision. If anyone has not done that, Father, I pray that you would draw them to me so that I can point them to truth or another one of the pastors or one of the leaders here at Discovery. And we would love to introduce them to our friend, Jesus. We thank you for that privilege in his name.